0: I promise it'll go fast. Hey, if you got a Bible, Second Timothy chapter 3 is where we're kicking off today. That's our launching point. And as you're finding that, um, let me just echo Reynolds' comments and say it's really, really good to have Jarvis and Kimberly here. And if you did not know, they are uh, expecting. And we found out just a couple weeks ago that it's a little boy. And so I launched into full-on um campaign to try and get them because my wife vetoed this name to try and get them to name their baby boy salvatore but um i don't i don't think they got a lot of italian in them and so i i i don't know it's not it's not working but um it's really good to have you guys and also as you're finding that um it's a special day for me as well my big brother is here he's coming through town and uh, Todd, just raise your hand, uh, big Todd, he's my big brother, three years older than me, and he is the um, director for an international ministry, national ministry called Youth for Christ. He's the director for the southeastern part of the United States. He's still living in our hometown uh, in Southern California, but he's trying to sell his house and he's still doing the job from SoCal coming out to the East Coast, and so he's swinging through, checking up on some chapters, so it's really, really good to have him with us. Couldn't be a better day for him to come. Today, I get to preach out of the Bible, then I'm going to go home, and with my big brother, we're going to watch our San Diego Chargers play in a playoff game. (laughs) Oh, it doesn't get any much better than that. All right. Um, All right. Hey, listen, today is, um, as you know, it's a big day. We're kicking off a series called God Wrote a Book. We always preach out of the scriptures, and today we're going to do something a little bit different. We're going to preach mostly about the scriptures, but uh, we're going to be reading a lot of scriptures as we go. Um, if you got my email this week, I mentioned that in all of my messages, I think along two kind of tracks. I want to be sort of a combination between uh, inspiration and information. I think if you're all one or all the other, it can you can kind of get into air. And so I like a mix of those two things, truth and motivation, inspiration and information. Today's going to be a little bit heavier on the information side, but I hope that by the end of it, we will be very inspired and very encouraged. Why is this so important? Understanding, if you are a Christian, the trustworthiness and the validity of the Word of God is incredibly important. In fact, the first words out of the devil's mouth recorded in Scripture are in Genesis chapter 3, where in the form of a serpent, he, he brings doubt into the equation and he tells Eve, Did God really say that? And so the enemy uses doubt, specifically doubt in the Bible, doubt in God's word as a primary vehicle of attack against us. Secondly, I think many Christians um, are a little bit insecure about their knowledge of the Bible, about how it came to be, about whether or not it is really God's word. And so I want to help encourage us and empower us along those lines. And finally, and maybe most importantly, and this is for the Christian and the person who may still be skeptical. And I hope that there are um, people in here that are still trying to figure it out, we want those folks, we want you to always be welcome at Crosspoint, is that if the Bible truly is the Word of God, then the implications of that are absolutely enormous. Then adhering to it and obeying it and striving to line up your life with it is means everything. And so the big question today is, how can we know that the Bible is... God's Word. Now, I want to state off, state plainly at the beginning that there's absolutely no way that you can prove that with beyond the shadow of a doubt. If you did that, then this life that we live would not be a faith life that God has called us to. And secondly, there probably would have been a book or an explanation written about it by now, and we all would have had this like, case closed. So we're not going to prove anything, but we're going to encourage one another with, hopefully, the information that, that um, we put out in the next couple weeks. This week, we're going to talk about evidence, about uh, what the biblical evidence or what the external and internal evidence is so that we can have certainty that the Word of God, true, the Bible truly is the Word of God. Next week we're going to talk about how the Bible came to be, the composition of the Bible, the Old and New Testaments, talking about translations, why there are so many different ones and how to read it. And then the third week, we're going to talk about the overarching message of the Bible. And also, I would like to maybe take some time in that week to answer questions. So if you have questions over the next two or three weeks, I'd love for you to write it down on the little tear-off section. Write it down, put it in the brown box on the back table. There's a little slit in the top. You can drop it in there. And I want to be able to engage questions that we may have to the best of my ability to answer those questions may not necessarily handle them on a sunday morning but i'd like to handle them maybe through email or just a standalone podcast that we can record at the office to try and kind of touch all the ground that we may be wondering because i want to address some um, the issues that may that may be on your hearts if we don't get to them and finally before we get started let me just say you know the bible i just i need you to know what it is to me i mean i I'm building my life on this Bible. It is, it is so dear to me. It's so precious. We're building our church on this Bible. My first Bible was when I was a little kid. I got one and I'd never read it. And I used to just put it underneath my pillow. I was kind of banking on osmosis, hoping that maybe something would suck into my brain. That was before I knew the Lord. And then when I was a senior in high school, I don't know if my brother remembers this, but he gave me my first Bible that I started to read as a graduation present from high school. And um, I didn't just put that under my pillow. I actually started to read that Bible. I still have that Bible. And I took it, it went to college with me. It was in the army with me. And it's very dear to me. And during my uh, almost 20 years now as a Christian, I became a Christian on March 16th, 1989, as a senior in high school. Um, The Bible has not always been central in my life. It's not always been preeminent in my life. And I've spent some time Early years in my faith i 'm having a real low regard for the scriptures, and God, through some key and pivotal people in my life, and the Holy Spirit working in those people, has drawn me into a place where by no means am i uh, do I live a life that 's completely in line with the scripture but um, I, I need you to know just how absolutely central it is to me and to us we're we 're banking everything on the book it is god's Word written for us. And so it's not just an add-on. It's the foundation. It's the platform. It's, 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 um, it's our life. And so uh, the Bible is a dear, dear, uh, dear, dear book to us. So um, with that, let's get to Second Timothy chapter 3. That's going to be our launching pad today. And um, let me pray before we read. The Lord, as we, as we open up this incredible book that has been... Um, vilified and opposed and and cherished and copied and talked about and written about and uh, has been the object of scorn and love far beyond any other book ever lord would you i pray settle our hearts down as reynolds prayed earlier and would you would you help me to communicate well would this uh, large amount of information that we have to put out today not um, cause us to sort of check out? But God, would you give us the great grace by your Holy Spirit to engage? And for those that are Christians that already believe that the Bible is the Word of God, I pray that it w- this would be a source of encouragement and emboldenment for our faith. And for those among us that may be skeptical or still trying to figure out what The Bible is about and whether or not it really is your words and whether or not even there is a God. I pray, God, that you would use this. I I do not pretend to think that through uh, a presentation with some facts that it would be the thing that would convince them. But only by your spirit can that happen. So would you do that? I'm so glad they're here. And, Lord, give us a mind to listen and give me um, an anointing to speak today. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is probably the classic Bible verse on the inspiration of the Scriptures, and we'll clearly define what that is. But this is a letter that the Apostle Paul, who is the, the, um, the, the apostle of the church in the Roman Empire, spreading the church across the Roman Empire, and he is now, towards the end of his ministry, writing a letter to a young man, a young pastor named Timothy, and he writes in 2 Timothy chapter 3, and verse 14, About the scriptures, he says, but as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. Now, when Paul's writing that, the New Testament had not been formed. I mean, he's writing this letter that's going to become one of the New Testament books. So he's probably referring, not probably, definitely referring to the Jewish Old Testament at that time. And he says, these are able to make you wise for salvation Through faith in Christ Jesus, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That phrase that we're centering on today is that the Scripture is breathed out, breathed out literally by God and is completely true. The first thing that I want to you know, uh, go through today is that we need to come to an understanding and an appreciation for the fact that God is a God who speaks. God is the greatest communicator. He, He, He speaks to His people, to His creation. He's constantly communicating. And there are two different ways that God communicates there. And you see on your outline there, number one, there's this, there's this idea of general revelation that God in the creation and in the cosmos and in every living creature in all ways, in all times, to all peoples, God is always, always, always communicating, regardless of whether or not a person has ever read the Bible or knows anything about the Christian faith. And there's a couple of scriptures that point to this. It's in Romans chapter 1. Verses 19-21, through Paul, the same guy who wrote to Timothy, writes to this church and he says, For what can be known about God is plain to them. He's speaking about Gentiles. In other words, just everybody in the world. Because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So that means that when you go out and you just see a tree or you stand on the edge of the ocean or you're standing over the cliff of the Grand Canyon or you're looking at a little bird or a hummingbird hover and flap his I don't have time it, I mean it's just you cannot just say eh, ah yeah, whatever that's just I mean it just bespeaks it just it just magnifies it reflects the fact that there is a god he says that because of this Everybody, they are without excuse, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God, give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. He goes on to echo the same sentiment. The next chapter over in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 16 says this. He says, For when Gentiles who do not have the law, in other words, the written Old Testament law, by nature, do what the law requires. They are a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law. So he's saying that there's something in work in every human being, even if they don't have some written down moral code, that we all just kind of know what is right or wrong. He says, they show in verse 15 that the work of the law is written on their hearts while their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them on that day. So what Paul is saying is, which is just common sense to anybody who's ever lived, is that regardless of culture, although we have differing customs, I, I, my brother and I come from the country of California and um, they don't, we don't do sweet tea for breakfast. I mean, we just, I mean, it's just, we just, we drink different stuff over there, or we dress differently in different parts of the world, or you eat different foods, but regardless of where you are, it is never okay to kill your brother. It is never okay to strike your neighbor. It's never okay to steal your neighbor's goods. And that is not just because it's been written down on tablets in Mount Sinai, but because even before that, There is this law, this law of the conscience written on the human heart, and that is God's general revelation at all times to all people speaking through creation and to the hearts of men and women. But there's also this way in which God communicates, which goes from beyond just the general revelation that anybody, if they just step outside on their porch and look, can know that there's obviously some divine being who created. He also specifically, at times, communicates through what we call special revelation. And this is clearly spoken of in the scriptures in Hebrews chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2, it says that in days of old and through various ways and various times, God has spoken to our fathers through the prophets. And in these days, He has spoken to us through His Son. And so special revelation would include... God speaking through men in the Old Testament. Prophets like Jeremiah and Isaiah and Ezekiel and speaking through men like Moses. And then also the birth and the incarnation of Jesus. He's spoken to us through Christ. And then obviously the New Testament apostles that have given us the New Testament. God is speaking through a written word. And so we've got this general revelation that God is always communicating through even just creation and all its attributes, and then we've got a specific revelation where God now is is very intentionally and in a very particular sense through His Word speaking in written form through the mouths of prophets and apostles and His sons that now becomes the written Bible for us. He's speaking to us. This is most clearly, and I love this psalm because it combines how God speaks on both of those levels. It combines the the general revelation of God and it combines the specific revelation of God and it's in Psalm 19. It starts off and it says that the, the heavens declare the glory or the handiwork of God in Psalm 19 verse 1. And then it goes through about six verses where it talks about how God communicates to the cosmos and the creation and it says that, that, that the stars pour out speech and then in verse 7 through 11 it talks about how God then specifically communicates to us through his law, where it says in Psalm 19, verse 7, that the law of the Lord is perfect. And so God communicates in a cosmos, in a creation way, and he communicates in a specific way. Now, let's pause here before we move on to say that you may be saying, but yeah, Brad, it's really hard for me and obviously for the rest of the world to recognize that. And I understand that it is oftentimes to hear uh, difficult to understand and know what God is saying. But it's important that we that we agree upon this that that is more of an indication of fallen humanity than it is of God's ability to communicate. The scriptures can be very, very difficult to understand, but that is a result of our sin, not of God's inability to communicate. In fact, a very encouraging verse at the end of Second Peter, Peter, who was an apostle of Jesus, who was one of the writers of the New Testament, said about Paul, who's another writer of the New Testament, he says, Guys, the things that Paul has written are hard to understand. So, yes, the Bible's hard to understand. In fact, one of the Bible writers said about another one of the Bible writers, that is tough. That should be encouraging to us. So, the point number one is that God speaks. God speaks. Now to point number two, because we want to spend most of our time in uh, point number three, answering the question, how do we know that the Bible is God's word? The first thing that we need to establish, just so we have a ground upon which um, to work from, is that what do we as Christians believe about the Bible? These are important things that you don't get kicked around on a Sunday too often, but I think they're very important for us to establish. What, what do Christians historically believe about the Bible? What does Crosspoint believe about the Bible? Well, we believe, and this is fancy, this and... Uh, I was going to say 50 cents to get you a cup of coffee, but 50 cents wouldn't get you even a packet of sugar at Starbucks. So this plus about eight dollars will get you a cup of coffee. That's not very good at Starbucks. And um, this this definition um, is is the definition of verbal plenary inspiration. What does that mean? Well, we're going to we got it written down there for you. You got it up on the screen. This this. This doctrine or this truth, which is standard amongst churches that are Christian, says that God supernaturally directed the human writers of Scripture so that without waiving their intelligence, their individuality, their personal feelings, their literary style, or any other factor of expression, His complete and coherent message to mankind was recorded with perfect Accuracy in the original languages of Scripture. And the Scriptures were primarily written in two languages. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, which is the language of uh, the, the Jewish people. Two very small portions, maybe three, are written in a common language of the day called Aramaic. And then the New Testament is written exclusively in Greek with a few quotes in Aramaic. So basically we've got Hebrew. And we've got Greek as the two languages that God is using to inspire and write his scriptures. And so this is important. Those three words are real important. Verbal means words. God has through words spoken to men. And plenary is kind of a fancy word that means full. So we believe that the whole Bible is inspired. There's not just, not just parts of it that, in, that are inspired, not just like... The Sermon on the Mount that's really good stuff, but all of it. Now, it's very important that we understand how to read the Bible because there are times, like especially in the Psalms, where it's it's God is working through a very frustrated individual and he will in one sense David will be saying, Well, God, you are amazing and then you turn the page and he's like, Smash their baby's teeth on the rocks and you're like Whoa, should we do that now? No. It's expressing the mood of the writer at the time. And so although we can say that the word of God is completely true, all of it is true, in some in some occasions it's just recording true events, not necessarily righteous deeds. Okay? So we believe that the words are completely true and that they are inspired by God. And this word inspired um it doesn't really mean, I think, what we want it to mean in English. What we mean by inspired is, is not that, oh gosh, he just had an inspirational moment and he, you know, he had a cinnamon crunch bagel from Panera and he drove through Starbucks and then he went home and he sat on the lake and he just had a moment of creativity where the birds were chirping and the sun was shining and, oh, it just hit me, an inspiration, inspiration, HGTV moment. No, no, not one of those. When we talk about inspiration here of the scriptures, we're talking about that literally they are breathed by God through a human vessel. So, so what does that mean? I think sometimes we wonder what exactly, how did that work? There's maybe this thought that God sort of took over and like Paul or Moses, whoever's writing their particular book or letter at the time, It's not like they got taken over by the Holy Spirit and they're in some catatonic state. God is working incarnationally through the mood, through the personality, through the life, through the circumstance of these people and He is directing and supernaturally superintending what they are writing so that every jot and tittle, in fact, every little crossing of the T and every dotting of the I and every word in the original Writing of the scriptures, we believe, is completely inspired. A good verse to give us an idea of how this happened is in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 21-22. It says that, it says that, for no prophecy was ever spoken by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. And so did the writers of Scripture at the time know they were writing a document that was inspired by God and would become eternal for our ages? I, I don't know. That, that's not a question that we, we can answer at this point. But there was a sense of authority, I'm sure, in these men as God was raising them up and using them as leaders. But the Holy Spirit is working through them and in a supernatural way to the nth degree making what comes out of their mouth onto the page the inspired word of God. And so that's what Christians believe. Now, you may not believe that. That's okay. But that's what Christians believe. I don't think actually it's okay. I think you should believe that. But um, if you're not there yet, um, I hope that this will, will convince you otherwise. So that's verbal plenary inspiration. That's what we believe. Secondly, which is an important um, concept to understand that we hold to it here at Crosspoint and other faithful Christian churches do, is this concept, it's a concept that dates all the way back to the Reformation um, with Martin Luther, and it's this idea of sola scriptura, that's a Latin phrase meaning Scripture alone is the teaching, and we've got a definition on the screen and in your notes. It's the teaching that Scripture is the church's only infallible and sufficient rule for deciding issues of faith and practice that involve doctrines. While the Bible does not contain all knowledge, it does contain that which is necessary for salvation. So while tradition may be valuable, it must be tested by the higher authority of Scripture's. There's another doctrine, solo, with, uh, 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 instead of an A, solo, uh, not sola, but solo, which means that we use the Bible and nothing else. And we don't necessarily hold to that. What we're saying in sola scriptura is that the scriptures are the highest court of authority. But there are some issues that they don't speak to. And so if you needed uh, your oil changed and you didn't know how to do that, you're not going to find that in the Bible. Go to a mechanic. If you need... Um, heart surgery, go to a cardiologist. If you need a haircut, go to a barber. Uh, but, but that's not, well, anyway, that wasn't a good example. But, but the point is, is that there is general revelation and there is general truth, but we only accept it as Christians so long as it does not, does not um, contradict the truth of the Scriptures, and so we hold Scriptures as our highest court of authority, and every church tradition, everything that we do, must be run under the guardrails of Scripture. So there's some implications here to this. The Scripture is authoritative. If it is, in fact, God's Word, and for for a Christian who believes this, the implications are that if this truly is God's Word, then it is it it carries with it authority. You can't just choose to... um, Uh, read one part of the Bible and follow it. Everything is written for us. Uh, One of our presidents, Thomas Jefferson, very famously had what was called the Jefferson Bible. And he uh, sat down with the Bible one day and some of it kind of Didn't square with the way he was living and his morality. So he took a a pair of scissors to it and cut out everything that he didn't like and came up with what is known as the Jefferson Bible. I have a copy of it. Um, we We don't make up the Bible. The Bible makes up us. So we believe that it's authoritative. And the Bible is clear. Now, certainly there are parts of the Bible that can be very, very difficult to understand. But in issues pertaining to salvation and faith and who God is and who we are in light of that, the Bible is abundantly clear. Thirdly, the Bible is necessary. Okay, people... Do not become Christians apart from the revelation of the knowledge of the truth that is given to us in scripture. Nobody walks out on their porch that's some pagan, um, uh, idol worshiper and says, looks at the stars and says, oh, there must be a God, and I'm just gonna now worship him and sit on my par- porch and go, um, I mean, that's not, that, that general revelation may push you to special revelation, but people, Their salvation, every person is saved by what is in the Bible. That's why the Apostle Paul writes in Romans chapter 10, he says that speaking of the gospel and the good news, the specific good news of Jesus, he says, how can they be saved unless they hear? And what he's talking about is the fact that Jesus died on a cross, rose again for the the forgiveness of sins and the victory over sin and death. So that is the knowledge that saves, not just that there's a general God. And so the scriptures are necessary, and finally, they are sufficient for us in life. And Second Peter chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 states this very clearly. He says, it says, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who has called us to His own glory and excellence. So His divine power has, has given to us everything that we need for life and godliness and salvation. Okay, now we're getting into the meat of it. Question number three, and this is the heart of the issue. How can we know that the Bible really is God's word? We're going to look at some different lines of evidence. The first, a couple of things that I want to emphasize, which we mentioned at the beginning, is that we cannot prove anything, but we can examine the evidence and see where it points. Now, first of all, the Bible stands alone in circulation. The Bible is by far, by far the most Copied and circulated book in the world. In fact, the United Bible Societies, which is an organization of a bunch of different people, not all of them, but a bunch of different organizations that distribute and sell Bibles, in just the year 2000 alone, there were 663 million copies of Scripture distributed. The Bible has been translated in over 250 languages, or over 400 languages, and portions of it have been translated into 2,500 languages. And in fact, many of those languages would not even have a written form were it not for the work of missionaries and Bible translators who go into the culture, learn their audible language, which at that point did not have a written form, and then create script for that language to then become the Bible. That's how influential and how much it has been circulated throughout the ages. It is secondly by far the most influential book ever. It is uh, the most written about, it's the most quoted, it's the most referred to book in human history without a doubt. And thirdly, about its, its um, peculiarity, is that it is by far the most opposed book ever. Now, does that prove anything? No. But it does give you an indication of the peculiar and special nature of the Bible. And speaking about the opposition to the Bible, just kind of a neat little irony of history. In the mid-1700s, there was this famous French philosopher named Voltaire. Maybe you've heard of him. He was an atheist, and he was very antagonistic towards Christianity. And he famously presented. Predicted that a hundred years after he died, that Christianity would be extinct, and that the only copies of the of the Bible would be found in museums. And shortly thereafter, he passed away. And about fifty years after his death, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and the printing press that was in his house, and used it to distribute thousands and thousands of Bibles. In one of the strange ironies of history. Put that in your pipe and smoke it, Mr. Voltaire. So the Bible is it's the most circulated book, it's the most influential book, and it is the most opposed book. Now let's get into what the manuscript evidence is of the Bible. And this is really, really striking stuff. This is, this is very, very important um, evidence for the validity of the scriptures. A manuscript is... A copy of the Bible that is written by hand manual like manual script okay the printing press the Gutenberg printing press was not invented until I think the early 1400s and so before that time you would have to if you wanted to distribute a copy of any writing any ancient writing you would have to write it by hand can you imagine hand copying the entire Bible all 66 books of it that's an incredible work so Um, Let's look at the manuscript evidence, in other words, the hand-copied manuscripts from the first century up until 1420s when we got the Gutenberg printing press and we could start firing off um, mistake-free copies of the printing press. And just a couple books of antiquity, we've got a chart up there. Um, Plato, who is obviously a well-known philosopher, he uh, wrote a bunch of works and he wrote them between uh, 61 and 113 A.D. The earliest copies that we actually have, because obviously he wrote it, but because these materials are biodegradable, things like papyrus and scrolls, they fade away, and so people would have to copy them again and copy them again and copy them again. The earliest copies that that have survived time for Plato's works are about 850 A.D., The time gap there between when we know he wrote them and the first manuscript copies that we have are 750 years, and there are seven copies of that. Caesar, um, if you watch anything on the Discovery Channel or on the History Channel, we will accept as fact, without a doubt, um, Roman history. Uh, We teach it to our kids in school. We never question it at all. A lot of it comes from the writings of Caesar. 100 to 44 BC, the earliest copies we have of that are AD 90, the gap between when Caesar actually wrote and the copies that we have of the manuscripts, a thousand years, ten copies. Aristotle, great philosopher of the, of, uh, the, of, the, of his day, 30, 384 to 322 BC, earliest copy of his writings, AD 1100 and 1400 years between that gap. When we are looking at Aristotle's works in a museum, or um, in an academic setting nobody doubts whether or not what we have as Aristotle's writing is actually Aristotle's writing and there's 49 copies of that Sophocles 496 to 406 B.C. is when he wrote that the earliest copies we have are 1000 A.D. 1400 year gap 193 uh, copies of that and then the other most well known work of antiquity is Homer's Iliad written in 900 B.C. Earliest copy is 400 B.C., a gap of 500 years, and we have 643 copies of that. Let me make a point before we get into the New Testament. There's... It's never disputed that what we have as Homer's Iliad or Sophocles' work or Aristotle's Caesar or Plato's, we're never wondering, gosh, is this really what Aristotle wrote? It's just kind of accepted, yeah. We're basing curriculums off of it. We're we're erecting museums off of it. We're doing History Channel specials off of it. We are are developing curriculum and knowledge based off of this rather minuscule evidence of their manuscripts with this much time gap. Now let's look at the New Testament. The New Testament was written by um uh, about 9 different men between around AD 50 to AD 100. The earliest copies that we have of different um portions of the New Testament, books of individual books of the New Testament are uh, begin around AD 130 and go for the next couple decades. The time gap between the actual writing of the New Testament when Paul is actually sitting down writing to Colossians and Philippians and Romans, and then, and then it's being copied and copied now, and then a hundred years later, the earliest, the, the time gap is less than a hundred years. And this is the staggering, this is staggering. The manuscript evidence that we have, either portions of it or whole, just in Greek, which is the language that the New Testament was written in, we have 5,700 copies of original manuscripts of the Greek New Testament. And that's just in Greek. If you add in the other language of the New Testament era, which is Latin, that bumps up to another 10,000 So about 15,000 copies in Greek and Latin, the languages of the Roman Empire and Palestine at the time. And then if you add in the other languages, it's about another 9,000. So totaling 19,000 in the other than Greek sources. And you've got a total of about 24,000 original manuscripts of the New Testament compared to the next book in antiquity, which is Homer's Iliad, which is 643. That is unbelievable evidence that the Bible is an incredibly special book, and I think it very directly points to some supernatural and divine providence for the superintending of the preservation of God's Word. And we're going to talk about variations and mistakes within those manuscripts in a second, which is another astounding fact. You may be wondering, well, what about the Old Testament? Well, the Old Testament, up until about the mid part of this century, was a little bit of a weak spot in biblical study because and we're going to talk about how the Old Testament came to be next week but the Old Testament is the the combined writings of the Jewish people and we the earliest copies that we had of the original Old Testament in Hebrew were around 900 AD and so there was this huge gap between when we believe the Old Testament stopped being written about 3 or 400 BC all the way to 900 A.D. So that's a gap of about 13, 1,400 years. And that was a real weak spot in, in biblical archaeology. Well, in the irony of all ironies... In 1947, a little Muslim shepherd Bedouin sheep herder boy was throwing rocks in a cave about eight miles south of Jericho in the Holy Lands, tending his sheep, kind of goofing around like little kids do. And there's these caves there, and he threw a rock into one of the caves and heard a, a shattering sound like pottery breaking and dove in there and found, or he walked, he kind of crawled down in there and found this huge collection of, of pottery sealed with these ancient scrolls in them, evidently goes, and, and his name was Mohammed, by the way, in the irony of all ironies. A little Muslim shepherd boy named Muhammad finding what is now called the Dead Sea Scrolls. And then he goes and tells his dad, and they get all these people involved, biblical archaeologists come, they discover 11 caves. That in these eleven caves that they that that the archaeologists dated back to 100 BC now going back in time a thousand years before our previously most recent copies of the Old Testament they dated them back a hundred years and here's here's the here's the here's the stuff because everybody that believes in the Old Testament and in the Bible they're like oh great we found the scrolls of Isaiah. What if it's totally different from what we have now? Because there's been a thousand years, you know, where it's copied, and it's copied, and there's possible variations, and so do we know that what we're about to uncover is what, is, is, is what we have now? It's kind of like just pass a message. Just start here and, and with a, with a piece of information and pass it down the end of the aisle. By the time it gets to the person on the other end of the aisle, I mean, it could be a totally different piece of information, and we're talking about copying 39 books of the Old Testament. I mean, that's unbelievable. And here's the incredible thing. The variation in the text between what they found in the Dead Sea Scrolls, and by the way, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained every book of the Old Testament with the exception of the book of Esther. And the reason why scholars think that Esther wasn't in this particular collection is because it's the only book in the Old Testament that does not mention the name of God. And there was a lot of debate amongst um, um, uh, early Jewish scholars as to whether or not it should be in the Bible. Eventually, uh, you know, it's it's solidly in the Bible, but there there was some debate at that time as to whether or not it should be in the Old Testament um, in the 1st and 2nd century BC. But the, the, the Dead Sea Scrolls contained all of the Old Testament. And check this out. They went through these Dead Sea Scrolls, and the variance, in other words, the difference in what is written like in, say, the book of Isaiah back then, and the next copy we have 900 years later, the difference was less than 1%. And the, the differences were, were uh, well, actually, I take that back. The differences were less than 5%, but 4 of that 5% of difference was just like misspellings, punctuation errors, completely inconsequential stuff and then the remaining 1% different between the 900 A.D. copies that we previously had and the 100 B.C. copies that we found the little 1% difference was just a very few amount of word changes that did not change the meaning whatsoever of the text. It would maybe be a different word for a name for God or just a a different way of saying it, but absolutely inconsequential to the truth that the Scriptures are trying to communicate. The same thing, by the way, is true of the New Testament. We've got all of these copies of the, of, of the, of the Greek New Testament, and you've got them spreading all around the, the Europe and all around the, the Roman Empire. The variance between all of these copies of the Greek New Testament is, again, less than 5%. And about 4% of that is just punctuation and spelling errors. And the remaining 1% difference between all these copies is just in, in the New Testament, like some th- points they'll say Jesus and some points they'll say Christ. Different things like that that change the meaning. This evidence was absolutely staggering, staggering evidence. So let me stop here and say, what does this manuscript, manuscript evidence mean? Does it convince us? that the Bible is definitely God's Word. Does it mean, because there's this undeniable, unbelievable manuscript, physical, archaeological evidence that what we have today is what was written down in the first century and in the Old Testament, does that prove to us that it's God's Word? No. But it does prove to us that when we're reading the book of Luke, or when we're reading Philippians, or that when we're reading... Ezra, when we're reading Nehemiah, that we are in fact reading, at least translated into English, a very, 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 very close representation of what the original writers actually wrote. If you are a skeptic and if you do not believe in the Bible, you can choose to believe that what Luke and Paul and the other biblical writers wrote is not true. But you cannot deny that what we have today is not true very 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 close to what they actually wrote at the time what does that prove it doesn't prove that the bible is definitely the word of god but it is jaw-dropping evidence that there was some supernatural superintending sovereign work guiding this special book A biblical scholar writes this, his name is F.F. Bruce, he says, If the New Testament documents were a collection of secular writings, their authenticity would generally be regarded as beyond doubt. Okay, so that's manuscript evidence. Just real quickly, a couple other things. Archaeological evidence. Just a quick blurb here. Contrary to popular opinion, modern archaeology has only served to confirm rather than to deny any biblical account. Sometimes if you're talking to a friend that's maybe not a Christian, they're like, ah, yeah, but all the archaeological stuff, there's not been one archaeological discovery. In fact, secular archaeologists will use biblical books to point them in the direction of where they should be digging. The, the, the gospel of Luke, and Luke, write, Luke writes Luke and then he writes Acts, secular archaeologists have used that as like their base document to lead them towards an idea of what the culture was at that time. This is what a man named Archie, or I'm sorry, Gleason Archer writes. And he, um, he writes this in a book called The Encyclopedia of Biblical Difficulties. And at the end of this, I'm going to give you a list of all the sources that I use. And this is one particular book that might be something that you want to add to your library. And he says... He's a biblical archaeologist. He says, As I have dealt with one apparent discrepancy after another and have studied the alleged contradictions between the biblical record and the evidence of linguistics, archaeology, or science, my confidence in the trustworthiness of Scripture has been repeatedly verified and strengthened by the discovery that almost every problem in the Scripture that has ever been discovered by man from ancient times until now has been dealt with in a completely satisfactory manner by the biblical text itself. In other words, there is no, and you can have confidence in this, that there is no biblical, uh, archaeological evidence that contradicts anything in the Bible. So if you've got some friend that says, "Ah, yeah, what about all that discovery? Ask them to name one, number one, and then write it down and use this book, and you will have um, your faith emboldened. And secondly, um, apparent contradictions, again, along lines with that, every apparent contradiction in the Bible has an explainable reason as to why it is like that and I would encourage you to get that book which I will show you in a couple of weeks if you're struggling with that. Uh, next next line of evidence, internal evidence and I think this is to me the most, um, the most um, encouraging and noteworthy to me personally and then we're going to end on this is that um, the internal evidence of the Bible is absolutely um, compelling. First of all there's an incredible amount of fulfilled prophecy in the Bible. In fact, there are over 300 Old Testament prophecies that are literally fulfilled in the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the ascension of Jesus alone. It was written over a thousand year period and it contains 300 prophecies that were fulfilled in the life of Christ. Now you may say, If you're a skeptic that ah well, you know, we just kind of wrote that into the New Testament so it would fulfill that. Well, that may be the case, but to be able the probability of being able to write that in, nine different men, to come along with that type of agreement is slim. Secondly, the internal evidence of the scriptures is the experiential evidence. The Bible grips the hearts and minds of its readers. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 12 says that the word of God is living and active. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. And it, and it pierces, it divides our soul and our spirit and our joints and our marrow. And it makes known the intentions of the heart. It is a Bible. It is a book that grips our hearts and minds. It comforts like no other book. It convicts like no other book. It condemns I mean people either read it and are tremendously comforted by it or they are or they are angered by the Bible and the Bible frees like no other book. And thirdly and finally, the amazing continuity and agreement of the Bible is striking. The Bible was written over fifteen hundred years by about forty men, written on three different continents Written in two, and then the third smaller language of Aramaic. And the agreement between the scriptures is stunning. It starts out in Genesis with paradise lost, with fellowship lost in the garden. And in Genesis chapter 3, there is the first foreshadowance of the gospel where God tells the serpent that there will come this seed of a woman that will crush you. And then through the rest of the first five books of the New Testament, there is this establishment of the law, which is God's gracious, gracious intent to bring people back to him. And then through the rest of the Old Testament, there are these prophets that call God's people back to God and through this nation of Israel, God is forming his nation. He's forming his people through whom redemption will come and he's using these prophets to speak to and woo, not to punish, but to woo these people back into his way back into restore, back into renewal. And then He brings judges and kings and smaller prophets and He gives them wisdom and Proverbs and and Ecclesiastes and He's wooing them and He's forming His people and all along the way, prophecy after prophecy after prophecy is coming through this people called the Hebrew nation. And every now and again, a prophet will stick his head above the clouds and he will say, there is one coming. There is one coming who will bring final restoration. There's a son that will come and bring wholeness and healing and salvation. And through this people he is speaking. And then after Malachi, there's these silent years. And then Jesus comes and the gospels tell of the life of the Messiah and record His good deeds and record His work on the cross and record His death and His burial and His resurrection and His ascension and then we see in Acts the beginning of the church and the preaching of the gospel throughout all the earth and then the epistles are written to speak to these people to speak this message of Christ to build them up in the faith and then finally we end on Revelation which is the consummation of all things where the paradise that was lost in the garden in Genesis 3 is completely and finally regained in the return of Christ. The Bible is not an arbitrary, capricious, random collection of 66 books. It is an incredible, redemptive mosaic that begins in Genesis with redemption and paradise lost and ends in Revelation with redemption and paradise completely restored. The continuity of the message is unbelievable, humbling, and awe-inspiring. Here's my final thoughts. Number one, before this, let me just stop and say, because of this evidence that does not prove anything, but because of this evidence, I think that Christians can be very, very confident that the Bible that we hold in our hands today is in fact, the Word of God, and so what are the implications of this? I think that there are three that are many, but there are three that I thought of. number one, this is important, especially in a rationalistic, um, very arrogant age that we live in where we think that we can throw anything into Google and find it out or solve it, and we think that you know we can we, we, we just we're incredibly self centered in our culture, are we not? Do not be discouraged that we are not able to prove the Bible. Okay? Because I think and I don't know if this is just me talking here, I don't don't, don't write this in stone, but if we could prove the Bible, that would be in, in a in a sense a contradiction of the Bible. Because the Bible tells us in Habakkuk chapter 2 and verse 4, it says the righteous to live by faith. Paul echoes the same sentiment in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 verse 7. He says that that we walk by faith and not by sight. So if there was just something that was just put before us that we could know, it wouldn't be faith. And and it seems to me that God has determined that that would be less self-glorifying for Himself for it to be not an issue of faith. And so it takes faith. Mixed with the battle that we all have to figure out how God is communicating to us as we are living lives in broken, fallen humanity, which our own sin issues make it difficult to understand who God is. And so, it, it, it is a faith matter. There is no complete, signed, sealed, delivered answer. You may have great faith, and you may have no doubts, but do not be frustrated with somebody that does, and, and, and talk to them in gentleness and respect. And if you are a Christian and you have doubts in the Bible, be encouraged. Because that is part of what makes up faith. Jesus' own cousin, whose name is John the Baptist, who preached more courageously in the face of opposition than any man probably in the Bible, preaches to Herod about his adultery with his niece slash sister in law. It's really crazy, it's like a Springer episode. But he preaches to Herod about his sexual immorality, and Herod says, "Oh yeah, oh yeah, you're going to talk to me like that." He brings out this little teenage girl of his, uh, daughter-in-law of his, that he had with his brother's wife, who he took from her, and he says, "What do you want to? What do you want from from me?" And she says, "Give me that preacher's head on a platter." And so Herod sends John to prison and beheads him. And as he was waiting in prison to get his head chopped off because of some punk teenage belly dancer, he sends news to Jesus who he's about to die for. And you would think he would be convinced at that time. He sends word to Jesus. And he says, are you... You know, I just want to get this straight now. Are you really the one... And and you know what Jesus says to him? He says, yeah, go tell John. And he quotes this Old Testament prophecy. This is amazing. He quotes this Old Testament prophecy, but he leaves off the last line. And he says, yeah, tell John. He says, tell him that the lame walk and the blind see. And yes, I'm the one. And he doesn't quote that third line, which says, and the captives are set free from prison. Because he's saying, yes, I'm the one, John, but you're not going to get broken out. And John gets his head chopped off. Kind of wondering. oh. And we're like, oh my gosh, there was a Discovery Channel episode on whether or not the Exodus really happened. Ah! It's okay if you doubt. Right? Secondly, the earnest, and this is so important, this is important for a carnal age, we watch more, TV than we do read the Bible, just, let's just name the names of our shows, Desperate Housewives, Dirty, Sexy Money, that's edifying, we, we watch more of that than we read the Bible a lot of times. And so this is, this is incredibly important for a, a, a really self-absorbed age, and I count myself as part of that age. This is so important. The earnest, lifelong pursuit of obedience to the Bible is not an option for Christians. It is a non-negotiable. It does not mean that we live perfect lives, but it means that we, together, as a community, calling ourselves God people, calling ourselves people of the book, must... Struggle for the rest of our lives together as a family to live our lives in accord with the scriptures. And oh, by the way, that is not an individual sport. Let me read you one scripture. I love this. James 1, verse 22, it says, But be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and at once forgets what he was like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty. See, the Bible comes to free us, not to clamp us down. And perseveres, being no hearer who forgets but a doer who acts. He will be blessed in what he is doing. I'm not saying that once you become a Christian, you need to have... Uh, be perfect. In fact, I think one of the problems with church culture in our day, and I've said it often, is that church culture forces you to act like a Christian, a perfect Christian, too soon. Like, you get saved, God does this amazing work in your life, you know that your life is messed up, you turn from your sin, you do your best, and you trust in Christ, and you walk into a room full of people that look like they have it together but really don't, and all of a sudden you feel like you got to just play this silly little religious game. That's That's ridiculous. The guy that you're sitting next to, that you walked in this room saying, man, he's got it together. This just in, he doesn't. He doesn't. I don't. And we're all, we're all pardoned rebels if we're Christians, graciously walking with one another towards this book, towards the God and the person of Christ that this book reveals. And that is not Easy, and you can't do it just by checking a box, singing a few songs, stuffing a donut in your pie hole, acting like you got it together, and leaving this place thinking that you can navigate through this broken world on your own. Playing church games. It is asinine. But we do it. And our call is, in this moment, not to do it. To live together in a way, an earnest, lifelong pursuit of obedience to the Bible together. Being gracious towards one another. Being long-suffering and patient towards one another. Doing the hard work of doing community. Yes! Life point groups are hard! Are they not? You're like, yeah, life point groups, let's do small groups. And then you're like, you get out of your car, you walk into the house that you've signed up with, and sure enough, within the first 30 seconds that you're there, you've picked out all the psychos in the room, and you said, I'm never coming back to this place. (laughs) Doing life together is hard. If it were easy, it probably wouldn't be worthwhile. Adherence to this book is a lifelong pursuit of Christians. And, and then finally three, and I'm wrapping it up, is, is, this, is that, and this is for you if you're a skeptic today and maybe God's been working on your heart, the Bible makes very, very specific and exclusive claims about Jesus and the necessity of our response to Him. If the Bible is in fact the Word of God and that's a matter of faith between you and the Lord, then there's nothing more important than these claims. The Bible doesn't primarily tell us how to live. It tells us how Jesus lived so that we could receive him and he could live in us. The Bible says in John chapter fourteen and verse six, in fact Jesus says this himself. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except but by me. And so my prayer today over the coming weeks For as long as you may be hanging around cross point, if you have not truly received that and you have not been rescued by the gracious love of God, that you would do that. How do you do that? I'll just give you two words. The first thing that you must do is you must turn away from self-reliance. Turn away from sin. That doesn't mean that you're perfect. It just means that you realize that you've been relying on yourself to get through life. You turn away from that. And you say, God, all that is, I've I've trusted in wrong things. And then you, the second, the first word is turn from self-reliance to sin. And the second is now I trust. Not with 100% certainty, because it wouldn't be faith. But I trust in what Christ did. I trust in what the scriptures say happened. And I give my mind and my heart and my will and my decision as a conscious act to follow God and when you do that the Bible says that something miraculous happens that you you are born again you become new are you perfect? no but you begin this process of living out this life that we are all on together for those of us that are Christians you you must do that you must do that and you can simply do that by turning from sin trusting in Christ as the guys are coming back to sing you can do that as we're worshipping with a few songs here um Sometimes it's helpful for people to pray with somebody when they want to do that, but you can do that on your own. I'd love for you to come find me after church if that's you. But that is the whole heart of the story of the Bible. Because also although the Bible pertains to the whole world and it pertains to the to the are the doors locked. Sorry. <laughs> you guys go ahead. So much for exiting stage left. <laughs> That was good. That was awkward. (laughs) Um, Although the Bible is written to a community of people and to the whole world, it applies to you and to me. Uh, Let's bow our heads. Lord, as we um, spend just a moment, I know the hour is late, but I, I pray that this has been profitable for us. I pray that it's encouraged Christians. And I pray that it has stirred the hearts of skeptics. And Lord, we live in an age which um, screams in our ear relevance, functionality, social acceptance.